questions, I come to the second half of my presentation this evening. And this is on the subject of the passions. Enemy or friend? <laughs> if we look at classic work of orthodox ascetic theology, the ladder of divine ascent, by St. John Climacus, abbot of Mount Sinai. Out of the 30 steps in that ladder, we find that no less than 16, more than half the total, are concerned with the struggle against the passion. Now that's a typical indication of the central place occupied in Greek ascetical theology by the notion of passion or pathos to use the Greek word. But how exactly is this struggle to be understood? Are the passions to be seen as intrinsically evil, as corruptions and distortions of our true nature, and therefore not part of God's creation? As the playwright George Bernard Shaw asks in Man and Superman, is the devil to have all the passions as well as all the good tunes. <laughs> or should we see the passions rather as neutral impulses, neither good nor bad in themselves, but becoming such according to the use that we make of them? Should our aim to be to control rather than to mortify. In the words of the 17th century moralist, Sir Roger Lestrange, it is with our passions as it is with fire and water. They are good servants, but bad masters. Now, part of the trouble is that the English word passion doesn't adequately translate the Greek word pathos. Sometimes people translate the Greek word pathos as emotion. But that again is not altogether satisfactory as a translation. The Greek word pathos is linked with the verb paskine, meaning to suffer. So it means passively it means fundamentally a passive state, as contrasted with dynamis, an active, dynamic power. So pathos means fundamentally something that happens to a person or object, an event or experience undergone passively. So St. Clement of Alexandria describes sleep and death as pathos. 
Gregory of Nazianzus calls the phases of the moon, pathi. So applied to our inner life, pathos then means an emotion or feeling suffered or undergone by the soul. Now, if we look behind Greek Christian writers to Hellenic philosophy, we find, in fact, that there are two different ways of regarding the passions. There is first the way it, they are seen in Stoicism, and then secondly the way they are seen in Aristotle. Speaking of Aristotle, do you all know, or is this only an English usage rather than an American one, do you all know what a spoonerism is? Yes. yes. People usually think it is to transpose the opening letters of words. Uh, for example, when I was at my preparatory school, age of eight till twelve, on Sunday evenings, we used to have hymn singing, and we sang hymns for 35 minutes, one after another, which, at the age of eight or nine, you did find sometimes a little tedious. But we were allowed to choose the hymns that we wanted to have sung, and we developed a tradition every Sunday evening of ensuring that at least one of us would choose the hymn, Conquering Kings, Their Titles Take. And we always used to sing that as kinkering kongs. <laughs> and the headmaster's wife, who was in charge of the hymn singing, would say, Now, don't be so silly. <laughs> sing it properly, again. And we'd all roar out, kinkering kongs. It was, it was our great uh, sign of rebellion. Um, in fact... That is not the real nature of Spoonerisms as spoken by Dr. Spooner himself. Dr. Spooner was warden of New College, Oxford, at the beginning of this century, and uh, when he retired, he um, went to live in North Oxford in the house where we now have our Orthodox Church, One Canterbury Road. That's why I feel a particular veneration for Dr. Spooner. And what he did was, there was something wrong with the connecting mechanism in his brain. And he would, instead of saying the word he meant, he would use some entirely different word which yet had a connection. So he didn't transpose the syllables, but he used the wrong word. Um, for example when he was walking with a friend in the country, he went past, this was in the north of England, uh, a, a, far, a, a farm that was called Chicago. And he said to his friend, isn't it extraordinary that farm is called Washington? 
So there was a connection, but he didn't get the right word. Anyway, there was a famous occasion when he preached an eloquent sermon in College Chapel. At the end of the sermon, he came down from the pulpit. And then a worried expression came over his face. And he went back into the pulpit and he said, Dear brothers and sisters, I'm sure you will have understood that each time in my sermon that I mentioned Aristotle, I meant our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> However, when I speak of Aristotle, I do intend Aristotle, at least I hope so. Now, in Stoicism, you find that pathos, passion, means a disordered, excessive impulse. It's a natural feeling that's now got out of hand, that's become disobedient to reason, and so contrary to nature. So the Stoics call the passions diseases. There are pathological disturbances of the personality. So the wise man aims at apathia, passionlessness, the elimination of the passions. On the other hand, Aristotle says that the passions are neither virtues nor vices, neither good nor evil. We are neither commended nor blamed because of our passions. They are neutral, and everything depends upon the use to which they are put. And he includes among passions not only such things as desire and anger, but also friendship, courage, joy. So our objective for Aristotle is not the total elimination of the passions, but the mean, the moderate, reasonable use of the passions. Not apathia, but metriopathia. Now, when we turn from classical philosophers to the Christian tradition, we actually find that both these understandings of passion appear in the tradition. The word passion or pathos isn't used very often in the New Testament, but whenever it occurs, it is used in a negative sense, as something sinful. And that is probably the most common usage in the Christian tradition. For example, the leading exponent of desert spirituality, Evagrius of Pontus, speaking of Evagrius, um, 
He was a man of quite severe asceticism, taking up the question asked just now. Shortly before his death, he said, in the 15 years since I came to the desert, I have never eaten a salad or taken a bath. Now, Evagrius talks of eight evil thoughts, and he calls these evil thoughts demons quite often, but he also calls them passions. These eight evil thoughts of Evagrius, which he took over from Origen, his list, then become later in the West the seven deadly sins. So the seven deadly sins do have an eastern origin. The list, though Gregory the Great made some adjustments and reduced them from eight to seven. First pray to be purified from the passions, says Evagrius. There's something negative. Clement of Alexandria says that the truly good man has no passions. John Climacus takes the same kind of view. He says that vice or passion, it's interesting he treats the two as more or less equivalent, vice or passion was not originally part of human nature, for God is not the creator of the passion. It is dangerous to swim in one's clothes, says John Climacus, and equally dangerous to embark on theology while still subject to the passions. That's a warning. Though, incidentally, Climacus does not put arrows among the passions. Eros, the sexual urge, is not in itself sinful. Climacus sees it as something that can be turned and used in the service of God. Now that's one approach to the passions. But alongside Greek fathers who follow this stoic understanding, there are others who follow something much closer to the viewpoint of Aristotle. And I'd like to quote to you this evening as a special example of that, a text from Abba Isaiah, or Isaias. It's quite a long text, but I'd like to read it more or less in full because it's very interesting and it suggests a rather different approach from that of people like Evagrius. Abba Isaias is fifth century, he lived first in Egypt and then in Palestine. He was probably Coptic speaking, though the writings we have come down to us in Greek. 
He starts by speaking about desire, epithemia, which would have included for him, I think, sexual desire, though not being limited to that. There is, he says, in the intellect, a desire that is in accordance with nature, and without desire, there is no love for God. That is why Daniel was called man of desires. But the enemy has changed this into a desire that is shameful, so that we desire all kinds of impurity. So you see he's making a distinction there between what is in accordance with nature, and nature for him it means not fallen nature, but our nature as created by God. There is a use of desire that is in accordance with nature, and then there is another sinful use which is contrary to nature. And he makes this distinction over the other passions. He next comes on to jealousy. The Greek word for jealousy is zealos. And so the Greek term carries the meaning of what we today would mean by jealousy, but it can also mean zeal. There is in the intellect a jealousy or zeal that is in accordance with nature. And without jealousy, there is no progress towards God. That is why the apostle says, strive jealously for the good gift. 1 Corinthians 12.31 and it might also be said though Isaiah doesn't say this here that in the Old Testament God is described as a jealous God so jealousy is not in itself evil but this jealousy directed towards God has been turned and changed within us into a jealousy contrary to nature so that we are jealous of each other and envy and deceive one another. He seems to equate fairly closely jealousy and envy, but there could be an argument for making a distinction between them. Then he goes on to talk about anger. There is in the intellect an anger that is in accordance with nature. An anger, that is to say, implanted in us by God, part of our nature as God has made it. And without anger, there is no purity within a person unless he feels anger against all the seeds sown in him by the enemy. But this anger has been changed within us so that we are angry with our neighbor over all kinds of futile and useless things. There is in the intellect a hatred that is in accordance with nature. And without hatred against what is hostile, nothing of value is revealed within the soul. But this hatred has been changed within us into that which is contrary to nature, so that we hate our neighbor and loathe him. And this kind of hatred expels all the virtues. And then, most interesting of all, he goes on to pride. 
is there a good pride? Isn't pride in itself something evil? Well, he thinks differently. There is in the intellect a pride that is in accordance with nature that we feel in the face of enemies. And when Job felt this pride, he reviled his enemies, calling them dishonorable men of no repute, lacking everything good, whom I would not consider fit to dwell with the dogs that guard my flocks. Let us remind ourselves that the ancient Near Eastern attitude towards dogs was very different from the attitude towards dogs found in the West today. But this pride in the face of our enemies has been changed within us and we have humiliated ourselves before our enemies and grown proud against each other. And so Abba Isaias ends, see all these things were created together with the human person. But when Adam ate from the tree of disobedience, they were changed within him into these shameful passions. So there are shameful passions which reflect our fallen sinful self. But the passions as such are not necessarily shameful and they were implanted in us at our first creation and are part of our unfallen nature. So here is a very different attitude from that of Evagrius. The things that Evagrius considers demons or specifically evil thoughts are considered by Isaias to be a natural part of our personhood as created by God. Desire or anger is not in itself sinful on Abba Isaiah's view. What matters is the way it's used. The ascetic Christian seeks to redirect rather than to destroy. I find particularly interesting what Isaiah says about pride, though it's not altogether clear what he means. I suspect he means that there is a good pride which we can use in the face of our enemies. I suspect he means here he's speaking of the demons who tempt us to self-hatred and self-disgust and despondency in the face of the temptations which say to us, you are ugly, you are unlovable, you are incapable of doing anything good, your life is worthless. In the face of the demons who say those kinds of things to us, we need to affirm our awareness of our valuous persons made in the divine image and loved by God, instead of humiliating ourselves before our self-destructive thoughts, we need to recover a proper sense of self-esteem. That is how I understand what Isaiah is saying. <coughs>
humility does not mean self-hatred or self-disgust. Humility is to say whatever I have is a gift from God. Humility is to give the glory to God. Humility is to be transparent, but not to be self-disgusted. I think all too often people misunderstand that. So I think that is what Isaiah means by a good use of pride. There is a good self-love as well as a sinful self-love. There is a sinful self-love, yes indeed, but there is a good self-love. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves says Christ, so that means we are to love ourselves. Now, Abba Isaias does not stand alone. Maximus the Confessor talks about the blessed passion of holy love. So love for God is a passion. And he insists that the passions can be praiseworthy as well as reprehensible. And then St. Gregory Palamas refers in terms reminiscent of Maximus to the divine and blessed passions. And he says that the aim of the Christian life is not the mortification of the passions, necrosis, but their transposition or redirection, metathesis. So when we look at the use of the word passion in any particular Christian text, we have to look rather carefully and ask how is the word being used, how is it being understood? Is it being used in the negative, stoic sense, as in Evagrius, or is it being used perhaps in the less negative, Aristotelian sense? And of course, it's possible to say this is just a linguistic point, how we use words. However, how we use words is extremely important because it does influence the way we think about things. Words possess deep symbolic power. And therefore I think the way we use the word pathos does have considerable importance. What do we say to ourselves and to other people? Do we speak negatively or positively? Do we say mortify, or do we say redirect? Do we say eradicate, or do we say educate? Do we say eliminate, repress, or do we say transfigure? I myself, in my own pastoral counseling, find the approach of Abba Isaias to be often very helpful. Thank you.
This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over for the continuation of the message on side two. Now, I see someone ready to jump into the pool of Bethesda. Please. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Um, I enjoyed your talk extremely, and uh, you uh, were your considerable learning very lightly. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you were here this afternoon for uh, the first uh, talk of the day, or the earlier talk, but uh, during that one, uh, uh, there was um, enough um, uh, unease with um, how to think about anger uh, that, in fact, we never get on to sloth. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, um, others might disagree with what this controversy uh, consisted of, but, but uh, uh, my recollection or, or my interpretation of it was that uh, following a therapeutic, uh, psychoanalytic uh, 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 models, that, um, that some in the audience felt that, um, perhaps along with Abba Isaias, that um, anger of itself was not a sin, uh, but that anger uh, might be properly or improperly used. Uh, that that uh, if one, or if one repressed anger uh, in the name of Christian, uh, a Christian struggling with the unruly passions, that, um, that this was not necessarily a good thing, because perhaps it was a bad thing, better to express anger. And uh, the, the speaker uh, said one thing that I found quite illuminating, uh, which is he said um, some people, uh, he found that dealing with some people, what he needed to do was urge them to get in touch with their anger, and with others he found himself moved to say, Cut it out. Uh, um, uh, stop doing that. Uh, and um, uh, I'm wondering if, say, the difference between Evagrius and Isaias may have been one of these differences of either of personality or perhaps of context. Perhaps uh, Evagrius found that there was entirely too much acting out of the unruly passions uh, in a harmful way and that Isaias uh, found perhaps that there was too much uh, uh, repression of what properly directed would be a healthy and therapeutic uh, passion. Do you, do you have a view on that? Yes, uh, thank you. Briefly to summarize the question, I was asked whether I was here this afternoon whether I heard all that was said by this afternoon's speaker, and whether I agreed with what was being said about anger, and more particularly, the questioner just now um, said, perhaps partly it depends on the context, and that in some situations you might tell people to eliminate their anger, in other cases to act it out but in a positive way. 
and that might depend on the context and on the person you were dealing with. Um, when in doubt, tell the truth is a good principle. Um, uh, so I have to tell the truth is that I did miss most of this afternoon's presentation, to my regret, but I unfortunately was detained by other tasks. I would have liked to have heard the presentation. Um, I think, yes, we have to allow first of all for the way words are being used. We shouldn't concentrate just on the one word, anger, but we should look at the way in which it is being used by a particular person or in a particular passage. We shouldn't become fixed narrowly on the particular word, but we should look at the total meaning. And secondly, I do agree definitely that you have to allow for the context. You have to allow for the verbal context if you're looking at a written passage. You have to allow for the human context if you're dealing with a particular person or persons, yourself or someone else. And the counsel that you give will not necessarily be the same for every person. This is why the Orthodox tradition has not, on the whole, tried to produce systematic manuals of moral theology, where theoretical cases are argued and you're given a series of principles to apply and practical rules. We don't like to systematize our moral theology. That doesn't mean we espouse situation ethics. It doesn't mean that anything goes, but it does mean that we are concerned with persons and not with abstract rules. And hence the great importance that is attached within the Orthodox tradition to the spiritual father or the spiritual mother, to the counselor or guide in the spiritual way who need not necessarily be a priest. But what matters is that we talk about our inner life with someone personally who can judge our specific situation and give the kind of advice that is suited to it. So the context is extremely important. I certainly would not want to say that anger is in itself sinful, but what we do with our anger has to depend on particular persons. And therefore, what we say to people about how to use and come to terms with their anger would again depend on the person who was before us. And we'd have to talk with them and find out about what was going on in their inner and their outer world before we offered an answer. But I would put it this way. The anger may be negative, destructive in its expression, but behind the anger there is usually an energy which needs to be redirected. And so 
simply to tell people to repress their anger is usually not a sufficient answer. They've got to find ways of using the energy that will be creative and affirmative. Whether you call the energy anger or not may depend on the way you choose to use the words. But fundamentally our strategy needs to be affirmative, not simply to say mortify, destroy, but rather to say transform. That I suppose behind this lies a view of the human person which says that our basic impulses implanted in us by God are good and what we need to achieve is not simply the negating of those impulses but rather the faithful and true living out of them. That would be my approach but I don't speak obviously as a psychologist or a pastoral counsellor. I speak as a student of the fathers but also as a parish priest on the basis of my experience over 20, no, 32 years now of hearing confessions. Yes, please. Several times in the Psalms, the psalmist says that, or reveals his passions as affecting different parts of his body. Could you comment on that? Yes. Um, Clearly, some passions are associated with particular parts of the body. The passion of, here I'm using sinful passion, of gluttony or greed, obviously is so associated. Um, feelings of fear though that's not exactly a passion, can hit us in the stomach, the lower part here. Um, obviously, feelings of lust are, have a particular physical uh, center, but that would not be true of all the passions. I mean, some passions are more intellectual, like envy or pride, and they are not necessarily associated with a particular part of the body. So clearly there's a certain gradation of passions, and Evagrius, using passion in the negative sense and discussing the eight evil thoughts, um, says that the more physical ones are the ones that afflict us more in our youth, such as lust and gluttony. In middle age, we are more likely to be affected, he says, by anger and perhaps by avarice. Young people are often very generous with their material possessions. Middle-aged people are often rather mean and begin saying, well, I've got to save up for my old age. And, um, 
And he would see, I think, things like um, ambition as being um, perhaps more a mark of people in their middle age. Um, then he says that the characteristic weakness and passion of old age is pride. Um, well, that might not be true of everyone, but it's interesting as a um, as a, a, a graduation that he sees a moving away from the more physical passions to the more um, intellectual passions. Who did you say said this? This is our friend Evagris of Pontus, okay. who didn't eat lettuce for 15 years. <laughs> uh, yes. In Eastern philosophy, the idea of balance seems to come out quite strongly as well with yin and yang ideas like that. How do we as Orthodox, or what protection might we have as Orthodox that keeps us safe from falling too far into balance without remembering what the object of our, or our mission is here? How to keep God in the balance? Yes. Uh, the danger to me of a model of balance is that it perhaps lacks proper dynamism. If one talks of moderation and balance, something of the fervor of the Christian life has gone, something of the thirst and enthusiasm. And clearly there is a sense in which balance is very important, that so often the truth whether in words or in our life, lies not in affirming one thing, but in holding two different things in balance. But if we have only the idea of harmony, moderation, which is Aristotle's idea, the golden mean, somehow something of the fervor of the Christian vocation is lost. Something of the emphasis where we're told, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, in Orthodox moral teaching, there is no agreed minimum. There's only the maximum of sanctity, which we all fall short. Um, sometimes people ask you about all things, and say, well, tell me, what are the basic things which I would have to do if I became an Orthodox in order to be an Orthodox in good standing? And I say that is the wrong approach. Don't ask what is the minimum that I can get away with, but look at the saints, look at St. Seraphim, look at Archbishop John of San Francisco, look at our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no agreed minimum which can enable you to say, I'm all right. Uh, we don't have a double standard with the rules that everyone must keep and then 
some higher councils which you may aim at. There's no distinction between a pass degree and an honours course. Everybody has to take the honours course. And uh, I think that is very important, that we cannot simply imagine that by achieving a certain balance, we are okay. We've always got to be reaching forward. As St. Paul says in Philippians, forgetting the things that are behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead. And St. Gregory of Nyssa says that this reaching forward goes on even in the age to come. We have to keep moving. Uh, is that a question? Yes? Your Grace, keeping in mind the, the integrity of the human person that you were emphasizing, is it, uh, I guess this is a yes or no question, if, if you want to make it so. Uh, are the passions a unit? If one is, in, if one is out of order, can we assume that the others may be out of order? Are the passions a unit, is the question. A unity. Uh, a unity. A unity. Ah, are the passions a unity? Uh, Usually, yes is never adequate as an answer to a question. And I would say yes, but then I would want to qualify it. Um, everything is connected. When I was at school, our history master used to say to us, and he had a high-pitched voice, it all ties up, you see, it all ties up. <laughs> and uh, that was the way he taught history, and it was an extremely good way of teaching history, because uh, what he tried to show us was the way events were connected. And that basically is the attitude of uh, the fathers towards both virtue and vice that the virtues, though we may distinguish them and label them, are all connected and are in the end a unity. And once more the same is true of the passions or the vices, that they are all connected together. And a lot of the writing in the book like the Philokalia about the vices or the passions is to show how they are connected and how we might not expect this to be the case, but they very often are. How people who are liable to pride then find that they fall into the sin of lust. And there is a connection between pride and lust, though it might not seem obvious to us. Perhaps I would develop that by saying what we are concerned with is life. And life is a unity. Life goes on. And though within our lives we distinguish different virtues or vices, yet in our life everything is connected in the living and continuing experience that we have as persons. We cannot make rigid separations. We can make distinctions, and unless we distinguish things we can't deal with but we must not totally isolate them. 
So I would say, yes, there is an interconnection, both in the case of good and of evil, both in the case of virtue and of vice, and therefore the passions, whether understood in good or bad sense, are all linked up together. Yes, the back, please. Yes, I guess. The question was, can we speak of Christ's passion in the same sense as what we have been discussing? No, not exactly. When we speak of the passion of Christ, there, I think, the word pathos means much more suffering. Um, and it is used also in the plural, the pathy, the sufferings of Christ. And so there, of course, the word passion is being used in a rather different sense. And yet, if we look at the Greek root, it is connected, because as I mentioned, uh, earlier in my talk, a passion is, in its fundamental sense, something undergone passively, where we suffer something. So there's a connection, but when we speak of the passion of Christ, obviously this is slightly different. There is, however, the question did Christ, this was not your question, but it's a question worth asking, did Christ have passions? And here I would take as my guideline Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity but one who was tempted or tested in everything just as we are only without sinning. So there it is said that Christ was tempted in everything as we are. And therefore, presumably, he did feel the reality of the passions, at any rate, as temptations, even if he didn't live them out. That Christ then did have passions such as we are, we have. Some of the fathers make a distinction and say that some passions are to be considered blameless and other passions sinful, and therefore Christ would only have had the first kind of passion and not the second. This is quite a difficult area. The Gospels do not tell us, for the most part, what was going on inside the mind of Christ. They tell us about the miracles that he performed, the parables and teaching that he gave, the sufferings that he underwent on the cross, his resurrection. But 
very little is said about the inner life of Christ. We are not in a position to write a psychological biography of Christ because the Gospels do not tell us about that. We have occasional glimpses. For example, the Garden of Gethsemane, that Christ did feel real anguish before his coming passion, that he prayed intensely, let this cup pass from me, and that so great was his intensity of feeling that the sweat fell from him like great drops of blood. Now that is one of the very few glimpses that we get in the Gospels of what was really going on inside the mind of Christ. We today are very interested in psychological aspects of things and we want to know all kinds of things about Christ which in fact the Gospels don't say anything about. So I would stick to the principle in Hebrews that he was tempted or tested in everything as we are, that he it shares the feeling of our infirmities, but I wouldn't want to try and explain that in detail, going beyond what the Gospels tell us. Uh, Dr. Dalek, you. One of the other few indications in the story of Lazarus when he went. Thank you very much. I agree fully. One of the few other indications is at the story of Lazarus when Jesus wept. So there we do have a very clear indication that he felt feelings of human grief. And certainly he felt feelings of exhaustion. That is mentioned. Well, exhaustion is not purely psychological. It's both physical and psychological. But that he also clearly felt. How we understand the words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is very difficult. And yet surely those words are fundamentally important for our understanding of the death on the cross. That the sufferings of Christ on the cross were not merely physical, but clearly there was a spiritual anguish and even a sense of abandonment the, that I find also important. But if we take the incarnation fully, then we can say to people who are suffering mentally, inwardly, that which you suffer has been shared by Christ. That's part of the meaning of the incarnation. That certainly I would want to affirm. Yes. Another question? Yes, uh, what was the eight deadly sin that What was the eighth deadly sin, the question was, that was left out so that uh, Gregory the Great made seven instead of eight. Um, that's quite complicated. If you want to discover all about it, let me recommend you to get hold of the translation of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, 
um, in the series The Classics of Western Spirituality. That's not the excellent translation that Father Lazarus made, but it was a translation made by someone called Colm Lubide, and uh, he was helped by Norman Russell. The Classics of Western Spirituality, read the introduction written by myself, a poor thing but my own, and there is a section there which tells you all about that. But basically, um, there are different ways of classifying the different feelings. Um, I think St. Gregory the Great distinguishes pride and doesn't number it among the seven, but sees it as the root of all sins. And then sometimes uh, there's a, a distinction made between akidia, axidi, which means listlessness, um, not exactly depression, because in confession I frequently... So, friends, I come to the second half of my presentation this evening, and this is on the subject of the passions, enemy or friend. <laughs> if we look at classic work of orthodox ascetic theology, the ladder of divine ascent by St. John Climacus, abbot of Mount Sinai, out of the 30 steps in that ladder, we find that no less than 16, more than half the total, are concerned with the struggle against the passions. Now that's a typical indication of the central place occupied in Greek ascetical theology by the notion of passion or pathos, to use the Greek word. 